Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe podcast. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe thought we would last. Talking Joe is there. Find each other like a married couple. A podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe is the code name for a completely untrained special podcast force. Its purpose to produce a regular comic review show while breaking and replacing a series of presenters from across the world. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. We are on our soapbox. Nobody seems to care. Fighting for fandom wherever there's trouble. The podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest-running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. This is the second of our looks at the G.I. Joe disavowed era, the Devil's Due Run. Today's deep dive will be into issues 2, 3, and 4 from 2001-2. Stick around for my quiz, Devil's True or Devil's Poo, at the end of the episode. Toy Talk, G.I. Joe merchandise, and the segment that everyone is talking about. Well, some people are talking about, well, just me is talking about. It's Inuendo. Now, without further ado, I spy with my eagle eyes, my co-hosts. First up, it is a real American kung fu gripping Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hi, Mark. Hello, everyone. Yeah, you've told you know you've told us last time that you've got, gone and told Facebook. So all of Facebook is probably listening to this right now. I, I'm. I want to apologize to Mark to your computer's servers because the overwhelming <laughs> crush of new listeners that I've brought all these downloads on Apple and Spotify and, and podcast. Um, you're welcome. I'm sorry. Yeah. One, one of the dials on the, on the computer server exploded because it was uh, so pressurized. Interestingly, it, in. it made a sound effect like from the GI Joe cartoon. <laughs> yeah. And the, the keyboard I use is, is very difficult because it's just square buttons that just <laughs> illuminate when I touch them. It's, I'm not entirely sure what they do, but um, whoever designed that. Mm. Anyway, rounding off our crew and with lifelike hair, it's G.I.J. It's Jay Cordray. Hi, everybody. He's made it back. That means that he's regular. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been broken yet. He's still unbroken, um, but no longer near mint, unfortunately. Um <laughs> <laughs> Out Good of to the talk package to you. for a long time, yeah. Good to talk to you guys. How has your weeks been? What have you been up to, Tim? I've been typing my year in review blog post for a real American book. Um, my my sort of writing year goes from January to February, or uh, from February to January, uh, rather than calendar year January to the end of December, because I include school vacation. 
So once a year, middle or end of February, I type a big blog post telling everyone what I've done in the last year for the book. And I'm putting the finishing touches on that and hope to post it Monday. Spoiler alert, COVID was not good for my book writing this year. Oh dear, because all of that staying in must have been rotten for writing. <laughs> this, uh, I, I, you know, everyone's, everyone's had a hard time, subtly and overtly. And uh, other things uh, have taken uh, precedence in daily scheduling. Uh, and also, um, sometimes you're just a little sad about the world and it's hard mm. to work. And I, yeah. I think of this with my students and, uh, and, and everyone in, in creative capacities. But it's been good for Talking Joe because I've had nothing else to do. <laughs> so, uh, that, yeah. You've it's, been uh, really busy in the last couple of weeks. I, I have. I've, I've had a few, couple of days off uh, on holiday from, from work and I've been, been putting those to, to good use. And I've been learning all about how YouTube works. Um, and, yeah, I've been trying to up my game because uh, our boy chief stride has uh, launched his brand new youtube channel so uh, check out our social medias to find the the link to that it's uh, called armor geekdom and uh, yeah it's chief doing his things toys reviews the splits etc and uh, yeah with 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 you know that as my uh, my mental competition my mental uh, high watermark to beat. I, you know, having to learn uh, learn about how uh, YouTube works, how you how you put together all of the the things that need to be done to do that. So yeah, it's been a, a fun learning process. And uh, yeah, if you if you are listening to this on audio only, then uh, you know you and you want some visuals, you can go over to the YouTube uh, site. You know, all of the links are available at talkingjoe.co.uk. And uh, you can you can you know watch along while we share some visuals. We've got the uh, Devil's Due first episode up on YouTube. Uh, I've got a flick through my uh, Devil's Due bind custom bound book, and I put up the regular issue as well. Talking Joe episode one one two, which was issue two seven seven of ARA. Yeah, it's quite fun and an interesting learning experience. I've gotten some feedback from that, uh, the, the YouTube video that you did for, for our first episode. Quite a few people have uh, watched it and, and contacted me about it. And so that was really, oh, really? nice wow. and really uh, a nice way for people to, to look at what we're talking about. And like I said, if, if we don't have the issues or our listeners don't have the issues in front of them, it's a great way that they can, uh, you know, see what it, what it is that we're, yeah. we're talking about. I can also feel conflicted as to whether I should describe what's happening on a page or in a panel for the listeners of our audio versions or make that information redundant for the people who are watching <laughs> on YouTube when Mark then nicely uploads an image of that page or panel. Well, I'd say just don't take it for granted that I'll go to the effort of taking out every <laughs> single individual image. And um, yeah, I think by far our biggest listenership is still on the regular old audio only. And, you know, I think it works nicely for podcasts that you can download the episode and, and go on your walk and, and listen to some good old Talking Joe uh, mm -hmm. on your podcaster of choice. Um, certainly the way I used to uh, listen when uh, when it was Chief and one of his many other co-hosts that uh, it would be part of my Thursday morning walk to work 
I'd uh, listen to uh, listen to the latest episode. Yeah, definitely audio first. So uh, that's where cater to our audio fans. Um, but yeah, the video is a great great bonus. I my daughter I was messaging with her the other night. And she's like, I'm listening right now. She said, This is really cool. And I said, Well, check out the YouTube. I said, It's got the the pictures on it. And she said, uh, Well, that's what I'm looking at. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I let my my children know about it, and uh, they showed, uh, let's say, on a level of one to one to ten for interest, mm, probably zero, <laughs> just <laughs> just below the minimum. Well, your dad. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Very good. Uh, I think I'm ready to talk some comics. Are you guys? Yep. Yes. Let's do it. We're gonna talk about comics from Devil's Due. It's something you wondered if Talking Joe would ever do. I guess we'll explain it all to you. Gonna take some time to read the books we've never read. Oh, oh. So we are talking Devil's Due issues 2, 3, 4. Four from the back in the day, two thousand and one, two thousand and two, uh, and who have we got? We've got a creative team, which is layouts and story by Josh Blaylock, pencils by Steve Kurth, inks John Larter, colors are Hi-Fi Color Designs, edits Scott Whirl, cover A is J Scott Campbell, uh, back covers from David Michael Beck. And we also have an, an addition to the team for these issues, which is military consultant SFC Brian Savage Peterson. So FSC, of course, standing for sandwiches and fried chicken, uh, or probably Sergeant First Class, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I like sandwiches um, and fried chicken better. Maybe. I like, I prefer that, to be honest, as well. Tastier. Um, but uh, back in the day, um, uh, Brian Savage, he was a very active participant on over on the uh, Devil's Due message boards. Uh, it was sort of certainly in the, the run up to uh, the big launch where there was quite a big fan community who uh, were getting very excited about the launch of the new books. And uh, as yeah, a, a, a military man uh, and G.I. Joe fan and active a participant on the fan boards um he was yeah put forward and snapped up as the person to be involved in the book and uh, to be able to uh, help with some of the editorializing of what might be realistic from uh, from a military point of view what's the right jargon etc let's go and have a look at the covers in the gallery i hope you've got your tickets to this special gallery opening uh yep uh, see them there okay stamp you in and let's go let's have a look at the covers in the gallery i'll, I'll start so the cover to issue two it's a great contrast to the cover to issue one and this is a uh, a subtle rule that i think comics should follow editors and cover artists and often they do that the cover to issue two should be distinctly different from issue one so it, it pops on the stands or it pops in your mind and yeah uh this one issue one is all the heroes with the american flag 
uh, and we see them full body. This one is some of the villains with uh, cobra banners, red and black are the dominant cover colors, and uh, they're closer to the quote camera. Um, J. Scott Campbell draws a really you know exciting Destro and Baroness and uh, Crimson Guardsman. Um, two things about this cover have always uh, irked me. One, there's there's still some uneven parallel lines in the G.I. Joe logo. I'm looking at the uh, the, ital the italicized end of the E. But but more importantly, um, uh, Destro's holding uh, Cobra Commander's hood with his fist and his, his hand is upward. It's blocked by the logo. And this is a place where you would cut out a little bit of the logo and have some of the image in front of the logo. And I don't know mm -hmm. if Hasbro said, no, you can't do that. You can't touch or impede the logo, or if the folks at Devil's Do didn't think of it, but this cover loses a lot of its impact because I sort of don't know what's happening. Well, there's a, there's a Cobra Commander uh, face mask sort of floating in front of Destro. I guess he's holding it. Yeah, I think you're right, Tim. That would look really good if, if they put his hand in front of the logo. It would look better. Uh, and the Destro redesign is is looking pretty pretty good and, and not too far away from the, the V1 look. And the Destro is cut off just above his knees, so we don't get to see his great big stompy boots, unfortunately. <laughs> the other thing is, is, I guess, the Baroness redesign. So she's sort of all in black with uh, sort of fur... Uh, cuffs and collars, as it were, um, looking you know distinctly like Baroness, but uh, in a subtly different costume to her regular version one look, and and no Cobra logo on uh, on the chest. I really like this cover. I think Destro looks really good. Uh, Baroness looks really good on this cover. Her face, especially, is such a welcome change from you know what we mentioned last episode about uh, the way Steve Kurth did her on the interiors in most of the, mm. the panels. I mean, just really, really good Baroness. Um, as far as what she's wearing, um, I don't know. Is it even a uniform? It's just kind of, here she is. She's got a coat on. Um, you know, I don't even know if I'd call it a uniform or not. It's just uh, mm -hmm. clothes that she's wearing, really. I'm okay with this because I feel like she's not on board yet in the story. Right. Uh, you know, we're getting the gang back together and some of the bad guys are not convinced. Um, J. Scott Campbell draws very slender women. Uh, it's it's not just cartoonish. It sort of ends up being um, more than cartoonish and I think sort of artistically inaccurate and problematic. Um, really, really skinny waists. You know, I'm thinking of Mary Jane on some amazing Spider-Man <laughs> covers. And, yeah. you know, the Baroness is... Uh, almost always drawn as as an attractive uh, woman, and you know she's wearing her costume is black leather. Um, but here, particularly, that waist is a little thin. Going back to something that you just said, Tim, about uh, Campbell doing really thin women, I think she looks great everywhere. Uh, looks really good. But if you really look at her fingers, they they really are like claw like. I mean, I'm I'm looking at this on a fairly large screen, and and her fingers are are very thin, and you know the the knuckles are really pronounced, and it's uh, a little bit like I mean, the make that uh, the a other, little little thicken those up maybe, a, a bit like the other mother from Coraline, right? A little <laughs> a little skeletal, yeah. But as as a contrast, J. Scott Campbell draws sort of these definitive Crimson Guardsmen, right? There he gets the helmets right; and those aren't easy to draw. Um, they, there's sort of a regal quality to them, both from the design and also their poses. You know, they're 
you know, it's 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 too easy to use the word badass when when describing certain GI Joe character designs. These guys have always been badasses, and uh, yep. as as supporting characters on this cover, they add a great deal of presence. Yeah, they mm. look great. Yeah, great cover overall. Shall we skip ahead to uh, David Michael Beck's back cover? It's a kind of uh, mirror mirror image to what we're seeing of uh, the front cover. It's, it's Destro again, um, posing with a futuristic looking weapon of some description. Beck uh, is also contrasting his back cover to issue one, where the cropping is about the same as we saw Snake Eyes in that painting. Snake Eyes was facing right, Destro is facing left. Snake Eyes had a sword and uh, his logo behind him, and yeah. Destro's got a gun, and then the Cobra logo behind him. Um, the lighting here is great. This is one of those images where um, there's not a lot of light, and so a lot of the image is dark, but not fully in black shadow, but it reads as uh, a character in low light, and um, none of the highlights are overdone or distracting. Uh, whereas the painting for issue one's back cover didn't quite land for me, um, except the sort of overly invented uh, futuristic weapon he's got, which I can get into. Uh, this is a great painting. I love this image. Check out the face on that cobra. I just now noticed that. That's really cool. Yeah, he, Beck is adding some uh, dimension to it so that it's it's sort of two steps uh, less flat and iconic than the regular Cobra logo and a little bit more ornate and organic and dimensional. It's got it's got sort of a front and a side to it. Yeah, I think that looks really neat. It'd be very hard to do like if you were drawing interiors, you, you certainly wouldn't want to try to do something like that or even on a smaller image. But for something like that, it's on the wall. It's a big mm -hmm. decoration. That's fantastic. Very good. So skipping ahead to uh, issue number three, we've got J. Scott Campbell again, this time with Zartan on his uh, vehicle, which, remind me, Tim, is called... The Jane, Chameleon. The Chameleon. And I think that was going to originally be uh, Zartan's code name. I think he was uh, originally being mooted as being the Chameleon before they changed it to uh, Zartan. Is it, yeah, also called the Squ Swamp Skier, isn't it? Right. This this image this is sort of the rare J. Scott Campbell for me uh, cover for me that that doesn't work once oh. I once I sort of think about it uh, from a distance at first blush I think it's very exciting you know there there are some uh, in effect speed lines coming from these blasts shooting past him um, his pose is really animated it reminds me of that scene that he steals in I think it's the sixth episode of the animated series. Um, and we get him in his element and we get him on his vehicle, which, you know, love or hate, it's it's a part of that that first toy. I feel like this cover is sort of trying to do too many things, considering how little is happening in it. It's got mm. um, some sunlight coming through and he's reacting to it. Uh, there's this sort of explosion behind him. And I can't read. I don't know if that's an explosion that someone has thrown at him or if that's sort of the thrust from his vehicle. I'm reading that as the thrust Okay. Um, I think but... that's what that's supposed to be. The the thing that sort of most doesn't work for me here, and 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 I see this in Scott J. Scott Campbell's covers for issue one and four as well. Um, he sometimes compresses figures a little bit too much to fit a character into a space or to fit several characters into a space. And something about this foreshortening um, sort of 
how little of his uh, thigh we're seeing, that we don't see one entire leg. Um, I think I think the anatomy does technically work. I think this composition sort of betrays the pose. And he just sort of looks like he's been squeezed into a smaller space than he should be in. He should be bigger on the cover, just a little bit, and less foreshortened. I like the idea of this cover. It doesn't work for me. Yeah, it seems a little cramped. Mm. It's And it's it's actually sort of echoing what's happening in, inside on uh, page three of the issue, where he is on the, the squamps gear with uh, Zanya. And um, in an interview that I heard with uh, Josh Blaylock, he said that this cover number three was quite a frustrating one to look back on because he only sees what it he wanted to have been which is a cover interpretation of that that panel of Zartan and uh, Zanya but uh, Hasbro said no to that one um, they uh, they said that uh, you know Zanya bent over the front of it with uh, Zartan behind him just seemed to overtly sexualized uh, for them. So uh, that is why Zartan is solo on his uh, swamp skier. Yeah, I don't think that's an image we would have wanted on the cover. <laughs> I mean, I think it's I think it works probably better and it's certainly more iconic but uh, as a result, but uh, but you know, there we go. On the back cover, I think we've now got uh, Scarlet by uh, David Michael Beck. This this falls sort of halfway between uh, the Snake Eyes back cover and the Destro back cover. Um, I like the color and the lighting. I think that Beck's uh, rendering of different materials, um, I'd still like it to have a little more differentiation, sort of how, how cloth looks compared to hair, Compared, so the cloth of a costume, then the cloth of a flag, and then the fab, the the material of human hair, and then also metal for weapons. Um, painting is really hard. I cannot paint. I could not do this. And it's easy for me to say, um, I wish this was a little different. Um, but I, I, you know, Beck Beck is ex experimenting with these characters as he goes. So. Uh, I like the color and the lighting more than the actual texturing. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of this one. I don't I particularly don't really like the uh, the face and and hair effects there. That I, yeah doesn't doesn't do it for me, unfortunately. Uh, then moving on to our final issue, issue four. Um, it's a bombastic action scene. There we've got Flint punching a Cobra trooper right in the face, sort of coming to, towards us something similar to, to what we might expect to see from a G.I. Joe animated opening title sequence. We've got rock and roll on a minigun. We've got Scarlet doing a high kick up upside someone's head. We've got some vipers in the background. We've got major blood there. We've got the White House. We've got rattlers. We've got parachutists. And down either side, we've got um, headshots of the, the main Cobras on the right and the main G.I. Joes on the left. And they're looking, those floating heads are looking much like a Silver Age DC cover of, you know, Justice Society or, or uh, something along those lines. Something that J. Scott Campbell, um, I think he gets credit for, but it's sort of the sixth or seventh thing that people remember they like about his work is how much personality he draws into characters. I think we get distracted by like how cool Wolverine or how sexy this babe is on a J. Scott Campbell cover. And if you look at these 10 heads on the sides, they're all angled differently, left, right, mm. up, down. They're all making different expressions. 
and they're all uh, extremely appealing, accurate, and fun. There's a lot of yeah. fun in J. Scott Campbell's covers. Unfortunately, this cover is fighting itself because this valuable space that's given over on the left column and the right column to these floating heads, which is a way to say, these other characters are also in this issue, not just the three Joes you see fighting Cobra in the scene, means there's much less space for the scene to happen in the middle of the image. Um, and then, you know, you, you don't want to cover the logo and you've got the image logo and the barcode on the bottom. Uh, I think this cover either wanted to be like a grid of 30 heads, heads and, <laughs> heads and shoulders, or this image with Flint punching and no heads on the sides. So the, the, the scene could have breathing room and maybe a couple more figures. Yeah, they really lose a lot of space with the, the heads down the sides. And it, I don't think that it adds anything. It kind of reminds you of the, I'm not sure whether it was Marvel's, it wasn't their 70th anniversary. It was sometime during the 80s when they mm. had all the characters surrounding the book. And the if you're 20, going to do something. The 25th anniversary in, okay. 80, in 86. Yeah, if you're going to do something like that, I mean, really pack them in there. You know, on that cover, all of those covers, there were a lot of different characters. And it, it did fill up that extra space. But here you've just got a head and a lot of space and a head and more space. And it, like you said, it takes away from uh, cover that they could have used uh, for, for the actual image of the cover. Another way um, to pick up on this idea of more heads or no heads, Jay, is the color behind the heads is this uh, sort of muted purple that has yeah. a gradient to sort of a magenta and if that was white or like bright yellow or like bright orange then those heads would pop really differently i think with mm. with the color with that gradient behind them that's a dark color the heads sort of become they have the same amount of importance as the scene and so again in another way the cover is 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 fighting itself i don't think the colors did a lot to uh, help this cover Yep, you're right. Interesting. Now, I like your point about the the personality on those different heads. I think a lesser artist would essentially have the, a similar template for a face and would just uh, move around the accessories on that face, like, you know, different, slightly different haircuts, slightly different, you know, glasses, whatever. But, you know, just to be able to mix it up and have, have the different angles, the different personality really coming through is, uh, yeah, it, as you say, very... Uh, cool uh skill set to, to have is anyone else seeing scar from the lion king on that spirit down there in the corner <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of has that look to me there there is something very animation about how j scott campbell draws eyes very good the scarlet back cover is that the one where she's in front of a flag that's right yeah yeah it's a good thing that uh that you skipped me on that one <laughs> i don't like it at all no i don't um, like that one at all and then on the back cover of four, we've got uh, David Michael Beck again, this time with Cobra Commander sitting in a throne, a Cobra head throne. And I like this one a lot. I think uh, this is one of my favorites out of the, the four. It's got uh, an interesting sort of lighting source, sort of, which is making his uh, hood uh, almost glow. A lot of interesting texture details uh, to it and uh yeah, a lot of detail behind uh, Cobra Commander's uh, eyes. I... I think this is probably the best of the four. I, I mean, I've seen this image, you know, floated around online for, for years, ever since this came out. And, and I really like it. I think that, like Mark said, the, the lighting is really good. 
um, his pose, his detail. It's, I mean, it's really imposing. A lot of times Cobra Commander, they have him be kind of a, a joke. And whenever you get to see him in a threatening manner, it really, it really works, you know, and, and this looks like if you were taken in a throne room or something and this dude is sitting here on this chair, you'd be sweating a little bit. This is my favorite David Michael Beck G.I. Joe image of all. Not just the four back covers for this arc. The favorite G.I. Joe image he ever painted. Um, This has become an iconic G.I. Joe image. I think this was released as a poster. And, uh, you know, when you Google Cobra Commander, this is one of the images that tends Mm -hmm. to come up. Mm. Um, Everything about this works. Uh, there's some really, there's some really nice subtle detail in the background, which uh, is an afterthought, sort of, because it's, it's a cool pose of this menacing figure. But there are three spears, and a red um, banner, and it feels Roman, like the mm-hmm. Roman Empire. And here we have this leader sitting on a throne. Uh, so there's there's subtext here, uh, which adds to the the meaning. Um, uh, the anatomy on the uh, Cobra Commander's right um, leg, sort of what's on the left, um, is a little flat for me, but everything about this except that, all the, all the musculature, the various um, textures, color, lighting, uh, this is the best David Michael Beck G.I. Joe painting ever. I agree. It's really fantastic. Very good. Let's move on into the insides of this thing, because it isn't just covers, there's story and all sorts there too. So let's jump in. Destro assumes control of Cobra while Cobra Commander is driven insane and locked away. Destro is revealed to be the real Destro's son, Alexander. The Joes invade the Dreadnought compound but are infected by a nanomite flash bomb that knocks them out. Destro escapes with Scarlet and Snake Eye his captives. Kamakura and Spirit are sent to find Billy to help them escape. Cobra releases a nanomite plague on the US, leaving hospitals crowded with victims, power outages, weapons and supplies disintegrating at military bases. Cobra claims to want to help combat the nanomites and help the people of America. Cobra Commander is rescued from captivity by a ninja-like rescuer with throwing stars. Later, the Joes somehow overhear a phone call where he reveals the satellite that is being used by Destro. Destro's Cobra forces battle the Joes on the White House lawn. With the nanotech defeated, the Joes defeat the remaining Cobra forces. Hawk holds a press conference announcing that the threat is over for now, but the G.I. Joe team will remain in action. Meanwhile, Scarlet forgives Snake Eyes and he reproposes to her. So it felt like a whole bunch was going on in these issues, uh, reduced down to those uh, that plot breakdown. Um, where where do you want to begin? Um, I I f- I'd like to on a on a broad sweep of these. They seemed like they were trying to fit in an awful lot, and the storytelling just felt a little bit confused. And in particular, the wrap up seemed very jumbled and rushed. Yeah. Uh, so uh, issues two and three are 24 pages each, and issue four, uh, it's a supersized issue, it's 32 pages. And as with issue one, in his layouts, 
um, save the splash pages, Josh Blaylock is putting on average like six or seven or eight panels per page and mm -hmm. he's cramming a lot in there are lots of small panels where someone's explaining something or there's a vehicle rounding a corner or some cobras or launching some nanomites um mm -hmm. so uh there's a density to this which makes yeah. these satisfying to read but issue two for example um there are eight new characters introduced Oof. And there are, I counted, this is plus or minus five. There are 49 speaking parts of like, <laughs> of like marquee Joe and Cobra characters or characters who don't speak, but they're named like some mm. of the green shirts. And this is, um, it's too crowded. Um, like this is, this may not be a, a fair comparison, but I think just from a writing standpoint, this is maybe a helpful one. Um, in the newest issue of the monthly G.I. Joe, issue 277, it is a self-contained issue, it's 20 pages, and it spotlights one Joe. And he takes down uh, four or five Cobras, and we see three other Joes sort of say hello to him at the beginning of the issue. But the issue is just this one guy and his uh, sidekick, who doesn't speak, um, just solving a problem, right? Like trying to find some bombs uh, and trying to find some Cobras. And it's a very different... Exercise to put actually more than fifty. I think by the time you include like the jugglers and the reporters um, and the politicians, there are probably eighty speaking parts in these four issues. Um, what this actually feels like to me, and I don't know if Josh Blaylock did this on purpose. What this feels like to me is this is a five-part miniseries for the TV show, in terms of how quickly you can cut from place to place, character to character. You can have some talking heads on the news, jump ahead the narrative. And there's sort of a shorthand uh, for sort of who wants what. It's like, well, these are the good guys. And so they want stuff and here are some new guys. And everyone's got like one line to demonstrate their like shtick. So too much, too much is going on. I, I believe that this was an initially um, announced as a four-part limited series before that was an, then extended to be a regular series and it does to some extent feel like the the writer is is trying to just throw everything he's got use every single character you know really drain the well of of his ideas for gi joe and cram it into those four four parts which is you know why it is potentially so dense and, and also seems to end so ab abruptly because you know it's written with those four parts in mind and possibly not what issue five might be i think there's a lot of things that could probably be left out that um you know i agree with tim that a lot of it does seem really cramped and especially when we get to the battle in issue four i think that you mentioned this last time tim that in the battle scenes you don't get a lot of uh, there's there's too much close-up you don't ever pull back and, and see where things are from the bigger picture, except for like the very first panel when the Cobras are attacking. Uh, and, and all throughout the battle in the last, in the last issue, it's, you're right up on the characters and, you know, it's hard to tell who's where in relation to other characters. And I think you're right. Things just move too fast. But like I said, there's things that could definitely be left out. I think a lot of the stuff with the jugglers, there's a scene where they're questioning Hawk and, and, you know, basically belittling him and saying, well, you just manufactured this to get your old war buddies back together. And I feel like, 
why is that even in there? There's something else that's happening here, which doesn't work for me. There's a mean spiritedness to this. The Joes have these new support soldiers, green shirts, and a bunch of them are named, like first name, last mm. name. And uh, in the letters page, uh, we're told that some of them, you know, in the future could become like fully fledged Joes, not just like anonymous guys in green uniforms. And so the, the old Joes meet a bunch of these new green shirts. And this is after uh, issue one when or Hawk and Duke, like, you know, lecture a bunch of these new recruits about how tough G.I. Joe is. And then immediately a bunch of these green shirts are maimed and, <laughs> and killed. Like, oh, right, yeah. like eaten alive by alligators or crocodiles and just just shot, you know, like there's an ambush at a, at a, a, a highway check stop, uh, uh, checkpoints and you know, they just get shot by Major Blood and some Cobras on a hiss tank. And um, I think we all need to be very uh, judicious in how we injure and kill G.I. Joe characters. Mm. Because, you know, someone else is going to write this comic after you. And um, I think there's there's a little bit of this, like, uh, you know, G.I. Joe hasn't been serious enough up until now. I'm going to make it serious or the, stake, the stakes have been uh, low. I'm going to raise them and yeah. I'll do that by killing characters. And even if they're sort of anonymous characters, but then you have this, this problem. It's like, well, I only met these anonymous characters 20 pages ago. And was there really enough buildup for me to care that they're now dead? So it comes across as thin. Yeah. And you can, you can get away with it. If you're, if you've got a cool breeze or a mangler and you're, you're building up their character over the course of almost 20 pages before that you you then kill them but but when they're anonymous and they maybe haven't even been introduced at all or you know at best over the course of a couple of panels it's it's just completely throwaway and it doesn't really count for for anything and i thought initially you were you were talking to the point of uh, where you're talking about the the joe's getting mangled was was that training sequence where the likes of jinx um, is sort of showing off uh, her skills by beating up some of these uh, these green shirts. Um, you know, there's an off-panel scream from one of them when uh, when she's uh, showing off her moves later on. It uh, some of those sequences I think could quite easily have been left on the cutting room floor, and uh, the the series probably would have benefited for it. I agree with what Tim said. I think the word that comes to mind is callous. Um, I actually made note of, I think it's in the fourth issue when uh, they get to the checkpoint and Major Blood and the Cobras have a bunch of, I don't even know if they're green shirts or not. They're just guys at the checkpoint and they round them all up and Blood just shoots one of them in the head. And I was like, wow, Major Blood just like off that guy. And then earlier when we have uh, Zanya and Zartan return to the gas station and the gangbangers are in there and they're like, oh, we, you know, we got to get out of here. And she just blows them away. It's like, you know, kind of like what you said with, with Cool Breeze and those guys. You're introduced to them. You give them a little bit of character. When they die, it does mean something. But when you're just wiping out characters, you know, that, that don't really mean anything, it, it, like I said, it just feels kind of callous. I have another sort of overall uh, comment on this arc. And I have thought about this since, the, since issue one was published. And that is nanites or nanomites, <laughs> microscopic robots. 
that can, you know, like do surgery and repair red blood cells, or in this case, uh, uh, incapacitate soldiers and uh, civilians and politicians, or uh, like take apart someone's clothing and their equipment or also them, right? There's a scene in, I think, issue four where a Cobra soldier just gets disintegrated before like Zanya's eyes as Destro demonstrates his uh, power. Yep. I have a big problem and I have had since September 2001 when these comics were published with nanites in comics. Comics are a visual medium. You should show, not tell. And it is very hard to show in a comic something microscopic. I mean, you can, right? The last page of issue two, or sorry, the last page of issue, is it three? Uh, Clever Commander's going crazy. Yeah, the last page of issue three, uh, we sort of zoom away from an, uh, a satellite in orbit to Cobra Commander who's uh, jailed and we close up on his uh, eye and we see little gray dots in his pupil. And then the final panel is this like very angular, exciting sci-fi, vicious looking like metal robot, which is one of the nanites inside him. Um, there's an episode of Star Trek, The Next Generation where nanites take over the Enterprise and, uh, and nanites play a major role in uh, G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. When you have minutes and minutes and minutes for scenes to play out and you have a big visual effects budget and you can show the Eiffel Tower disintegrating and falling over, you can you have the power to make microscopic enemies compelling and visual. In this comic, like yes, we see them. We we see some close-ups of these robots. It just there's no drama in it for me. It's like, well, these old Joes who I feel sorry for in issue one, uh, like my favorite characters. Oh, they're stuck in a hospital bed in issue three, and Lifeline is really sad that they're not going to make it. And with the push of a button, Destro makes a Cobra guy disintegrate. It's it's a shorthand for. Like, I need a very quick, efficient way to hold the entire country hostage and take over government. And it doesn't work. I had a question, too, about, and they referenced this, this a couple times about the nanites, about um, people would say, like, well, he doesn't understand what they, what they are, or uh, about Destro reverse engineering. And I almost got the, the feeling, and this is kind of a story point, that I was like, well, who designed the nanites was this something Doctor Mindbender came up with? I felt like there was a, uh, it was unclear really. Like I said, there were a couple spots where, you know, someone would say, "Oh, you know," like I said, we we don't understand what we're doing, or, or or we're trying to reverse engineer these. If you didn't make them, you know, or if you did make them, why are you trying to reverse engineer them? Where did they come from? I don't know. Maybe that's something that gets resolved later on in the series. Um, or I'm just reading that into it, but I, I felt like that was um, an, un an unanswered plot point yeah I, th I think i think some of the, those type of components were quite confusing just the mechanics of how the nanites were supposed to work and how they were controlled and where they came from was was all a little bit rushed and yeah hard to follow it might it might have been that they were designed originally by the actual destro senior who's incapacitated and so destro okay. junior has got access to them and therefore is able to control them, but doesn't fully understand it all. Potentially something like that. 
um, yeah, there there was there was a lot of exposition going on, so it might be that it's covered more explicitly there. But um, I was I was somewhat losing heart wading through some of the uh, the dialogue he- heavy exposition, uh, to be honest. So <laughs> I wasn't paying as much attention as I might otherwise if if I was fully on board with it. Speaking of dialogue heavy exposition, Mark, in issue two, on page nine. Duke has a big talking panel. There are three giant word balloons. The first word balloon has 67 words in it. And there is a rule in comics, which I got from (laughs) Stephen Grant. Uh, Stephen Grant is, I I don't know him personally. I I read it in one of his online columns 15 years ago. But he's best known for writing the the initial Punisher miniseries in uh, 1985, I think. And the rule is... um, I think it's that a word balloon can't have, shouldn't have more than 50 words, but I might even be misremembering that. It might be like, shouldn't have more than 30. Again, uh, I, I think, I think some of these choices are uh, coming from uh, a new writer, you know, like I'm going to have my characters explain this stuff or the entire first page of issue four, the final chapter is one, two, three, four, five, uh, five really good drawings of city skylines as we see like uh, what I think is Chicago and some other city and some other city and some other city. Yeah. And there are three or four um, like electronic filtered narration boxes over each one as we're, it's like we're reading what newscasters are saying as they're describing this mysterious nanite attack. Um, and you know, is is that is that the first page you want a reader to be greeted with? You know, it's like you can have a recap page. Marvel does that nowadays. Uh, you can have a splash page. Uh, G.I. Joe did that in the 80s, right? The first page tended to be a splash page. There were some issues where the first page was a couple panels. You turn the page and then two and three was a double splash with the title and the credits. Um, do, do I really want, uh, like anonymous drawings of city skylines and like 15 narration boxes of newscasters telling me what's happening in this comic honestly when i was reading these i read two and three and i got to four and i hit that splash page with all that text and i just thought i'm gonna stop and read this another time it 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 does It, it blocks the action you know what i mean and that's the first page on that issue yeah, it's a major turnoff, isn't it? As for actual um, sort of plot and character, um, at the time I didn't like this introduction of Destro's son. Uh, it's a surprise. It's a surprise. It's a reveal, right? We see Destro. No one thinks it's not Destro, and then we realize uh, it's some other someone else, and we see the real Destro, uh, like again, like in a hospital bed. And it's, it's just, it's like I said on our last episode together, it's such a bummer to have these characters older and less, you know, young and exciting. It's like, I don't want to read about G.I. Joe characters retiring or being sick. I want them to go on missions and save the day or threaten the day. Um, but as a, as a dramatic and, and character beat, uh, you know, having Destro, uh, you know, have create a kid with someone who's not the Baroness and that kid shows up. That's interesting to me. Um, having, I think the idea of Hawk joining the jugglers is a good one. Jay, you're right. It takes up too much space in this very short arc. 
I also don't think the concept of the jugglers is properly explained for new readers in issue one or that scene. I think it's in issue four when, when they're giving him a hard time that you referred to. Mm-hmm. And one of the jugglers just calls themselves the jugglers. And like, you know, I, I, with the three of us, we're like planning, um, I don't know, some like bank robbery. I don't know that I'd, <laughs> I don't know that it'd be like, well, Mark and Jay, us talking Joes are sure going to get all the money from this, you know, like, it's like, no, you're like a certain subcommittee or, or like yeah. secret cabal of um, Pentagon generals. You don't call yeah. yourselves by your name. It's a nickname, right? At the end of this episode, we'll have a, a poll where we can decide what our super villain team name will be when the three of us go on a bank robbing spree. <laughs> so, yeah, in terms of that mention of the Destro reveal, let's talk about that a little bit. That. I think that was interesting, and and um, I understand that part of that reveal for Destro's son uh, being uh, black was a callback to uh, to the voice actor and I guess portrayal of Destro in the in the cartoon, where it's ostensibly he uh, was voiced by yeah a, a black guy, I believe, and um, you know a lot of people assumed that he he was and were quite disappointed by the reveal in the comics that he was just yeah a white scottish dude uh in, instead so so i think it was sort of having a little bit of uh fun uh and and service to to that point at the same time there's a there's a there's a thing that happens twice it happens in issue 1 and it also happens again in issue 2 where a woman who's disappointed with a man um, smacks him <laughs> in issue one uh we're catching up with scarlet and snake eyes and he jilted her and she smacks she slaps him right which which is just out of character um also he's wearing his his mask right so i, I don't think you do that right the point of smacking someone is you actually like your hand touches their cheek and it really stings and then in issue two the baroness slaps destro i guess it's destro jr um and uh, I don't think this is how you write women characters. And it's also, again, someone slapping someone with a face mask. <laughs> right. Yeah. I feel like if, you know, if I was in my early 20s and I was writing a comic, I might make this choice. And then years later, I might write this very differently because it's much more interesting to have characters, you know, talk through feelings or you have a character walk away and you sort of leave the reader uh wanting more like okay as a comparison um uh help me out i forget what issue number it is uh i want to say it's in the early 30s but it's the scene where uh in the marvel run the baroness and destro i think they're like underground in a sewer and Mm -hmm. he hasn't sort of opened himself up to her and and she's she says something like you know talk talk all you do is talk you've never shown me uh how you feel and then he takes his mask off and uh, it's, is it Frank Springer? Like, or is I've, maybe it's... I have a feeling it's Vosberg that. Yeah. Okay. Seen. So it's, if it's Vosberg, then it's earlier. It's not in the thirties. Yeah. So um, it's probably like nineteen or something. Thank you. Ten hut. Fat checking Joe here. Mark was thinking of the Vosberg issue number fourteen, where Destro confronts Baroness in a sequence underneath Cobra headquarters. A similar sequence plays out in issue 33 when Destro actually removes his mask. 
Tim was correct. This issue was illustrated by Frank Springer. Stand down and rest easy. Fat Correcting Joe, out. Destro takes his helmet off and he drops the mask. And I forget if they kiss or they hug or the scene just sort of pulls back. She faints. She swoons. Yeah, faints. Okay, thank you. Um, I don't... This thing where two issues in a row an upset woman smacks a man in the face? Oof, no. (laughs) Definitely doesn't pass the Bechtel test, does it? Uh, No, and, you know, and G.I. Joe has a hard time with that anyway because uh, the, the gender ratio is so out of balance. But yes. I had a question. Maybe it's not really a question. Again, about the Baroness and some of her uh, motives and actions. There was a scene where Snake Eyes and Scarlet are being held in the prison and Lillian uh, comes over. And basically, that's where the reveal is that Alexander is Destro's son, is her telling those two. Oh, good grief. Which you're like, I was like, "Why why is she telling them this? Okay, and then the Baroness comes over and there's a panel that I have no idea what's happening. I couldn't tell whether Baroness threw a jar of strawberry jelly at an iron grenadier's face or if she was supposed to have shot him. His visor busts open, all this red gooey stuff flies everywhere. And and then she starts talking to Lillian and I'm just kind of like, I'm totally out of the conversation because I'm thinking, what just happened to that iron grenadier? And why is she just either one, walking up to someone and shooting them in the head or to throw in a jar of strawberry jelly in their face. It just, I had no idea what was going on there. Okay, I, I've got this one. So in in a lot of the shots, it has, a, I think, been established that the Baroness is hanging around drinking wine, uh, drinking wine out of champagne flutes in some uh, instances, which is a little unbecoming, but uh, <laughs> never mind that. Um, so so um, I think we can extrapolate that, that, yeah, she probably had a glass of wine in her hand, which she's either thrown... <laughs> an iron grenadier's face and maybe yeah, okay that makes a little more the, sense the, or a wall next next to him but yeah it does seem to be hitting him yeah i had no idea what was going on there the scene the scene also is is distracting because there's no reason for armada to explain all of this backstory to two joe prisoners right, right. why is she why is she doing it she's doing it because i don't know and i'm reading the comic and someone mm. needs to tell me and you know, we sort of went through, in in popular fiction. We went through this era, you know, like James Bond movies in the '70s, where like he's tied up and there's a laser pointed at him, and the villain like explains uh, how he's going to die and what the plan is. And then when James mm-hmm. Bond gets out, he can stop him. And then you know, 20 years later, you sort of have the reversal of that, where you know the villain sort of jokes about about how they're not going to explain it yeah. and then they do anyway and and i feel like in a lot of sort of popular fiction is as you know storytelling has gotten more grown up and sophisticated with cable tv and streaming services i feel like nowadays this scene would happen where the the heroes in jail or tied up and there's a laser and the villain says uh like goodbye and just walks out and doesn't explain it because either we sort of all get it or like the villain already explained it to a different villain three scenes earlier and you don't need to tell the hero. The Baroness the Baroness does sort of say, you disgrace the name Destro. Why are you babbling this, this, this information to these two? She's almost pointing out that it makes no sense for you to be monologuing and telling them the entire plan. It's, 
Yeah, um, and that that actually makes it worse because now I feel like the writer is sort of admitting the mistake mm -hmm. as opposed to just not making the mistake. Um, the scene gets a little stranger because um, Snake Eyes has like a piece of C4 that he's been <laughs> hiding in his mouth and Scarlet has a detonation cord like as her hair tie so they can they can like blow up the jail cell and get out. And then on the next page, after they blow up the jail cell, she hugs him uh, and she just seems so relieved and happy and joyful. And uh, it's like, wait, weren't you really upset with him like two issues ago? I know you two almost just died because you've been in jail and the, the, the bad guys like caught you in a really embarrassing battle where the good guys lost. And then the final page of this panel, right after she hugs him, there's this silent panel where she's looking left and he's looking right. And it's just a like cool pose panel mm -hmm. that doesn't sort of continue the story beat. I think the idea is that they're like looking around a corner because they're guards down the hall. The, you know, the art overall, separate from like, you know, Steve Kurth's um, anatomy, uh, the art in this comic is, is, you know, that sort of exciting, flashy, a little bit, quote, hot, you know, 90s, 2000s. Uh, style, right? Um, there, there are more details, there are more lines, uh, there's less in the sort of heavy, uh, like Will Eisner uh, shading that you'd expect from like G.I. Joe issues in the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s issues. And a panel like this, it, it's sort of betraying this style. It's like, I need something on this page to look cool so that when the page sell, when the original artwork sells, it's not like the backs of heads and shoulders and hands mm -hmm. typing. It's like one panel that acts like a splash, one panel that acts like a cover. There's Yeah, there's a lot to get into with these few pages. Um, backing up just a little bit, Baroness comes in and she says, why are you babbling this information to these two? And then she walks up to the cell and she says, um, you know, this is the first time that the Baroness has been in contact with, especially Snake Eyes and Scarlet, since this whole thing starts. She walks over and she just says, she's right though, you'll both be dead by morning. Try not to lose any sleep over it. Oh, that's it. Baroness walks away and Scarlet says, okay, pressure's on. We've got to get out of here. There's a lot of history with these characters that is just seemingly forgotten. Baroness shot Scarlet in the head. Is that all just forgotten? Scarlet doesn't say anything really to Baroness in this scene. You would think that, you know, at the very least, she might try to jump at her through the bars. How you, how you would see, you know, arms reaching through there. Baroness backs up and, you know, maybe laughs at her and says, oh, you know, I didn't finish the job that time. You know, you're done now, but all that's just forgotten. And that was the first thing that came to my head because that's such an iconic panel where, you know, you Scarlet's head is off panel, but you see the Baroness and it's blam and the, the lighting is, is perfect. I think it was Mark Bright that drew that issue. And it's like, that's just not even referenced. It's not it's like that never happened in this comic. And then jump back ahead to what you guys were, were saying about, and this is just a little art nitpick that I have. They're in the cell. It's just the two of them. Snake Eyes doesn't have a mask on, and this is a, a complaint I have later. Um, they get out, they're getting ready to go, and all of a sudden his face is all wrapped up, and I just kind of felt like, why? Why did he wrap his face up? I mean, who's that for? Scarlet's obviously seen him without his mask or without any kind of mask. All they're going to be encountering is bad guys. Wouldn't the psychological trauma or shock of seeing somebody with a messed up face, which I don't think that he has at this point, be better than, oh, I'm going to wrap my face up so I don't startle any cobras. I mm. think it's so that he can remain anonymous. 
I, I think the story, I the story logic. It's for the readers. That. But you're right. Yeah, yeah you're it's right. Mostly it's, for the readers, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's cool. cool. Yeah, it's cool for the reader. I, I think that um, having Snake Eyes without any scars on his face for this arc really diminishes uh, his character. You know, in in the Snake Eyes trilogy issues um, 94, 95, 96, plus the prologue in 93, in the Marvel run, right, Snake Eyes gets his face fixed and then immediately Baroness or one of her cronies throws hot ash on his face. Yeah. And so the implication is that he's sort of re-injured or re-scarred all over again. And uh, I don't know that we ever get after that, uh, maybe in 144, but a lot of that's flashbacks. I don't know that we get a really good view of Snake Eyes' face in the Marvel run after that. But to me, even if he's had uh, reconstructive surgery, there still should be some scarring because that's just so much a part of his character. And yes, this is a couple years later and maybe he's had even more reconstructive surgery. It's like Anakin Skywalker has that little scar uh, uh, near his eye mm-hmm. in, was is it is it the second of the prequel movies, right? And like, I wouldn't want there to be some story before episode three where he like gets it fixed. It's like, no, this is informing my sense of this villain and this is why he wears a mask, right? It's like, no, no, Snake Eyes, Snake Eyes is scarred. He needs to be scarred. Yeah, I mean, we do see we do see quite a lot of Snake Eyes unmasked in the one forties mm-hmm. in in GI Joe when when they have the uh, what, they have that crazy title I can't remember what it is. It's like the Electric Boogaloo down at the Silent Castle or whatever it slam is. Slam dance and, at the Silent Castle. <laughs> that's it, the slam dance, and uh, yeah, that most of that mission he he's unmasked and um, is depending on who is drawing it, it either looks fairly normal as in un- unscarred or with some scarring to to the, his face and it's not clear from from this because you know a lot of the time he's sort of shown in in shadow whether they th- you know are intending him to be appearing to be scarred but it's just not shown or whether he is fully um you know fully okay and i don't know if that that reveal on the very last page of issue four where he's proposing to to um scarlet and you see his face and he's looking you know very much like duke you know all-american blonde guy with with no scarring at all whether that is intended to be snake eyes face or whether he's showing uh, whether he's wearing a mask going by the art there's nothing there to indicate that it would be a mask so so the, the you know obvious conclusion that you would draw is is that, that that he doesn't have any scarring and maybe that's kind of a part of a reveal that the the reason that we've seen him being shown you know back of his head mask covered up you know in shadow up to that point means that we don't fully know what the status of Snake Eyes' face is, and, and maybe that last panel is meant to, as well as it being the big proposal, is a kind of reveal to say, aha, look, Snake Eyes' fa- face is uh, looking completely normal. I think it almost has to be a mask on that last panel. Otherwise, like this page that we're looking at right now, why would you have him all wrapped up if if his face so that, isn't messed up? There's several so panels can, throughout yeah. here where you see like half of his face, and there looks like no scarring. Mm. So I don't know. Like I said, I, I felt that, that Snake Eyes' appearance was inconsistent throughout. How do you two feel about the proposal and the final page, as a as GI Joe readers, also as as the end of this miniseries? I could have done without it. 
could have done without it. it it seems a little bit unsatisfying you know it doesn't really address the underlying reasons why snake eyes jilted scarlet in the first place and maybe just wraps it up a bit bit too quickly and and it was forced easily. forced yeah um you know if i knew that all i had to do was smuggle some c4 in my in the palate of my mouth to make <laughs> my upset <laughs> partner forgive everything you know i'd know what to do but i don't think real life works quite that way what was the moment you knew well we were in a cell and he had c4 in his mouth and <laughs> i just knew that was the guy for me yeah I, I had debt cord <laughs> right sugar and spice so yeah, I think that, the, that squeezing yeah. that in there was just kind of, you know, give them an issue, give them more space to, to work this out, like Mark said. Maybe not necessarily a whole issue of their own, but at least have a, an issue. Like Larry used, used to do this a lot. He would have three or four plots going on in the same story. You'd have two or three pages. I think it was number 36. You had two or three pages with Scarlet and Snake Eyes on the ferry or between Staten Island, and then you'd jump to somebody else, and then you'd come back. You know, give them a little more... It just seemed like, especially for the first arc of coming back to the property, you, you introduce them as, oh, he stood her up, she's mad at him, they're in a cell, they reconcile, at the end, he proposes. Yay, it's like tying a bow on it, and it doesn't seem like it's, I don't know, it's too soon to do that. Mm. Should, we, should we talk about the elephant in the room? Should we talk about my letter in issue three? <laughs> let's, let's talk about that. <laughs> yes, let's, let's get do to it. it. All right, so for our listeners, um, I, I alluded to this in our previous disavowed episode, and, and Mark thought we might talk about it, and I said, no, let's wait. I read issue one. I was really upset. Uh, I'm a big G.I. Joe fan. I think issue one, uh, and to an extent, all four issues are, um, the two problems is, um, I think they're not great comics. They're also not great G.I. Joe comics. So I wrote a letter, and I... Uh, I think I emailed it. I mean, I remember sitting at my kitchen table typing on my laptop and I looked for the letter uh, after our, our last episode. I looked both in my sent folder from uh, fall of 2001 and also uh, the folder on my hard drive of where I keep letters and I, I do not have it. But I remember um, I was pleasantly surprised when it got printed in issue three. I appreciated that they were willing to print a negative letter I was disappointed that they cut it in half because my letter was just a list of things that were problematic. And, and what I, the specific that I remember is I called out one or two pages and panels where Steve Kurth had drawn uh, really poor anatomy in faces, right? Like cheekbones and lines on faces that don't correspond to like muscle, shadow, or skin. And uh, to his credit, the editor uh, ran the letter and when they cut it in half said, I shortened your letter because you know, we get the point and, you know, don't let it be said that we don't print uh, yeah. negative mail. Do you want to read the letter as you and then Jay can be the editor responding to you? <laughs> and and you can you can read the letter in this voice <laughs> if you want. Uh, dear, <laughs> dear Devil's Do, uh, reading the new book upsets me because there are so many little things your team is not getting right. I was hoping all of you could fill the large shoes left by Larry Hama and the artists of the Marvel run. Unfortunately, you are not up to the task. This book has pretty covers and ugly interiors. It's a good premise and a mediocre execution. I'll keep buying, but I'm not satisfied. Tim Finn. 
and the editor says, I edited Tim's letter down for space reasons, but this was the basic gist of what he was trying to say. Let it never be said that we won't print negative letters. Um, and they, they go do, do go into a, a little bit about, you know, we make no claims that we're better than Larry. But what I thought was funny, and I just noticed this a minute ago, the very next letter is even more harsh than Tim's. Uh, the, the very first line, the guy <laughs> says, please stop printing this comic book. It has caused strange feelings to wash over me. Um, and, and he says, if you care anything about another human being, you'll stop printing this comic book, which I had laughed out loud when I read that. <laughs> it, it shows you the reaction that people had to this. Doesn't the letter, though, uh, isn't that an ironic beginning? Because the final line is, if not, you may have a crazed Joe Groupie on your hands that will demand an ongoing series. Do you really want that? Yeah, I think <laughs> I think he, I think he was saying, he was saying that place. he was enjoying it. <laughs> that is, oh, really? Uh, yeah, it's just cra- causing him to you know walk around singing the GI Joe theme tune. And I, I've and I've thought thing. about I've thought about this. Uh, I've had three or four letters printed uh, in comics. Um, I got a letter in an issue of Black Panther, uh, and I got a letter or two, I forget, in the modern IDW run of G.I. Joe. And a lot of this goes back to after issue 95, I wrote a nine-page letter to G.I. Joe. Because I, <laughs> I was, and half of it is just me saying how great Mark Bright's art is. And I showed it to my brother, who's a wonderful person, and he said, that's really long. I wouldn't send it. Because he thought, you know, like they don't want to read a really long letter. Or they're not going to print a really long letter. He wasn't being mean or dismissive. I think he was just being sort of realistic. You know, these editors are busy. And I did not send it. And I have always had a small regret. I don't know that it would have gotten printed. Um, but, uh, you know, the, this, this, this connection that readers feel to properties and creative teams is real and the letters page in comics is a big part of that. And I thought since this letter got printed in Devil's Do issue three, uh, do I still feel this way? Am I embarrassed that I have this negative letter in this comic sort of out there for all time? And being able to talk about it on this episode is actually uh, wonderful. Uh, and being able to talk more specifically about what's working and not in the comic with two other people who are thoughtful about it is wonderful. Basically, I still agree. Um, I, I now know more about how hard it is to make a comic, particularly a licensed comic, but I, I don't think the people involved were quite ready. Yeah. I guess, I mean, Josh Blaylock was what, 21, 22, something like that. A young guy. I, I feel a little bit sorry for him, you know, having, uh, having all of the big <laughs> vitriol. It was, you know, it's a, such a huge undertaking and, particularly given their, their young ages, that they've, they've done something, you know, regardless of, uh, you know, some of the, the flaws with it, that they secured the license, that they got this deal with Image, that they put out the book, kept to regular scheduling, they got this incredible cover artist on board, they put together a package which, you know, has got flaws, but uh, is entertaining and has got some high points within it. And everything else surrounding that, that they that they were able to to do that and pull it off and to get it into a regular ongoing um, book, you know, hats off uh, to it. And uh, yeah, I wonder how much <laughs> how much some of these things might they might you know might have made them you know taken a little bit personally. It's uh, hard to say. Also, uh, you know, the book did improve. It cer- um, certainly certainly did. Um, just getting back to your your letter though, there's a couple of things that I'd call out for, for, first. Firstly. Hoping you would fill the large shoes left by Larry Hammer. 
there are some large shoes in the book for sure. There's Destro's big stompy boots. So I think don't cast aspersions about the large shoes. They've got that covered. And <laughs> the, the second thing I was going to say was that you said, I'll keep buying, but I'm not satisfied. But you didn't, did you? You, you stopped. Uh, I, I bought until issue 10. Uh-huh. And uh, then I had really had enough. The, the fill-in issue for issue five, I was ready for it to be different, self-contained, uh, what has Duke been up to before this arc? Getting Mike Zek on covers for the second arc, excellent idea. And, you know, the art's going to improve. But ultimately, the book made me unhappy and I found it boring. And so I stopped reading it. And I'm a crazy G.I. Joe fan. And you have to do a lot to get me to stop buying your G.I. Joe thing. I will point out that um, I think it's in issue four. There's a letter where someone I think is obliquely referring back to my letter and says, uh, I'll never understand why someone uh, would buy something that they don't like. And that's, I think, actually a big part of comics fandom, which is, yeah. I mean, how many, how many people do you know some comic, right? Teen Titans or Punisher. It's like, well, I haven't really liked it for three years, but I'm still buying it, right? Because these characters are so important to us and we're eternally optimistic that a different writer or artist or editor will come on and the book will get different or better or it'll somehow recapture um, some magic. I think part of why I was upset with Blaylock and his team is that I was actually mad at myself because a few years earlier, my friend and I, one afternoon, just had a fun like drawing exercise where we redesigned a bunch of G.I. Joe characters. This was you know after the Marvel book was over, so there was sort of no G.I. Joe out there. And we were trying to have the characters look enough like the original versions, but also update them. And that's what's happening in the in the Devil's Due run. And, um, you know, Blaylock went out and got the license. And to whatever extent uh, Hasbro will let him, he can do whatever he wants. Like once you've decided not to hire a certain writer and to use yourself, you know, uh, all, all bets are off. I think part of why I didn't like it is that I would have made some of the same decisions and they're not the best decisions. So I think I was actually a little mad at myself because I would have done this too. Like I might've, if I'd gotten the license at that age, uh, dedicated the first issue to Larry Hama, but not hired him because like, well, he's out there, but like now it's my turn to tell G.I. Joe stories. I'm a big fan. I can do it. Yeah, I've said it a couple times, um, probably more than that. I, you know, the problems we have with the execution or things that we might've done differently, I give these guys all the credit in the world for getting the license and going out there and trying. And, you know, the editor in response to your letter says um, that they're doing it to the best of their ability. Maybe that's true at the time, but, you know, they did it. They, they went out there, they got it, they did it, they put it out. How, whatever we think about it, that's either here or there. Uh, but real quick, right back to the, the, the editor. The last line he says, um, I'll have to respectfully disagree with you about Steve's Kurt Arth. Not taking anything away from anyone who worked on the Marvel series, but you haven't seen issue three or four of our run yet, and this is to you, Tim. After you do, let me know what you think. I think Tim's letting us know. <laughs> uh, Kurth did get better. In in three and four, I see a lot of faces. He did. Which, which I think he's looking at Brian Hitch's work in uh, The Authority and The Ultimates. Brian Hitch is, uh, excuse me, Steve Kurth is getting better. There's yeah. still a lot to be done, though. You know, it talks to the fact that he's clearly a new artist and he's not not got a lot of work behind him at, at this point in time. But there's a massive uh, organic change over the space of just these four issues. And issue four looks 
incredibly different to issue one in terms of the in terms of the art uh, the angles used the comp you know a lot of the composition um and the way that the faces and lips and cheeks uh look it, it's it's almost a different artist in places you'd be hard pressed to say this is the same artist um as as issue one i think the coloring isn't doing kerth any favors hi-fi does you know modern comics coloring style work i don't really agree with it uh they're the new colorists on Usagi Ojimbo, believe it or not, after Tom Luth retired from being cover color artist for like 30 years. Uh, and the new series, the, the, all the pages inside are in color. You know, there are too many gradients on faces and, uh, uh, you know, scenes where someone's like inside a lab or inside a prison or inside a, in front of a computer monitor, there's just too many colors. Um, and it's, it's too busy and busy coloring on top of very active penciling on top of very uh, busy inking. There are very few pages where my eye has any place to rest. And mm. there's a critical mass to this comic where every panel has a bunch of pages because Blaylock is cramming a lot of story, which is kind of awesome, and a lot of panels, right? So I'm getting my money's worth. There are lots of close-ups and medium shots and long shots, right? So he is visually telling a story, but so many word balloons, so much, uh, so many gradients, like light sources on every, you know, shoulder and piece of armor plating. And every time someone's got a little metallic anything on them, like that's got a highlight. I don't, I don't think Hi-Fi is doing Kurth a lot of favors. There's a, a, there's an ad, there's an ad in the back of issue three for um, another image book uh, called The Tenth Muse. And it's, it's a cover of some other comic and it's drawn by Roger Cruz, who's, um, sort of famous for drawing a lot like Joe Matarera on Uncanny X-Men. And this image is seemingly colored by Paul Mounts. It doesn't look like him, but it's all flat and all the colors are desaturated, right? There's a woman, there's, it's a superhero team like running at us and uh, there are no gradients. And the background is a, a slightly yellowish off-white and uh, there is a place for my eye to rest in this cover. Uh, not ev everything isn't sort of fighting and shouting with everything else. Uh, sometimes less is more. Okay, let's uh, let's have one more point each, and then we'll we'll move on. So, uh, one last one from me was the Cobra Commander nightmare sequence. Uh, so this is a scene where Cobra Commander is, I think, locked up in his padded cell, and he's you know having hallucinations around uh, being uh, surrounded by. Cobras, there's Tomox and Zaymont with two heads, and then there's little miniature G.I. Joes in the top right and bottom left-hand corners, and it's drawn in quite an animated style. And it reminded me a little bit of a splash page from Batman Judge Dread Judgment on Gotham uh, by Simon Bisley, where he has a nightmare about cute things. Uh, one of my favourite panels ever, probably. One of my favourite things about the, the, the issue, just to do something a little bit brave and different and to, to go for such a radically different um, panel splash page to uh, to the rest of the book. I'll keep this short because I've talked so much. I'll just respond very quickly to that same splash page, Mark, you just mentioned. This <laughs> animation style, uh, all these Joes and Cobras attacking Cobra Commander. Um, it's a fun page visually. It's a lot of real estate for a comic that one, needs every page that it can get and two oh is cobra commander's madness when destro's thrown him in jail is that a big subplot here 
I feel like in terms of writing, this is a page not well used, even if art-wise, it's a really fun image to look at. Jay? I mean, that page is what it is. It, it kind of is a, a real stark contrast to the rest of the book. But um, if we're just doing one last point each, um, I want to say, you know, we've all kind of been pretty hard on this in a lot of ways, especially artistically. But we've also said that, that Kurth did improve over, over the course of the four issues. And there's one panel uh, to me that really stuck out as a, as a vast improvement of his that, that I wanted to, to mention. Think about when we, we reviewed issue one and the very first image of Baroness on the computer screen. Real high cheekbones, real narrow chin, the big ugly glasses. Mm-hmm. Um, now look at, I think it's the, the second page in issue four, the very last panel, the news reporter. It's night and day. You know, her, her face is normal looking. Her eyes, are, are, everything is in proportion. It's it's a vast improvement from issue one. And definitely, I think the editor's right. I mean, they, there is some improvement that, that's gone through it. And, um, you know, like I said, we're, we're, we're hard on it a lot of times. But uh, overall, I liked it, the, the, the story, the four issues, more than it probably sounds like I did. You know, I don't want to I don't want us to feel like or to sound like we're overly critical. Uh, they, they took on a lot, and they definitely improved as they went along. And 10 or 15 years later, Steve Kurth right. draws a later G.I. Joe series, and he turns in great work. Correct. Okay. Do you have a, a last one from you, Tim? Uh, I, I think my long rant about uh, <laughs> colors... Uh, can be it. So I'll, be it. Okay. I'll, I'll pass. Thanks. Let's let's have a quick look at some G.I. Joe fashion. Armani, Prada, Versace 2. Joe's changed their outfits from black to blue. Duke and Hawk. Look, but don't gawk. Changing their kit. Whoa, was that legit? Swapping camo jackets, headgear and boots. It's now neon colours and funky space suits. Sci-fi stalker and even roadblocks. While Bill, Flint and Mutt gave me a shot. So go take a walk if clothes aren't your passion. Because it's comic book talk and lovely G.I. Joe fashion. So it, there's a lot of uh, new outfits, new looks, new characters to uh, to choose from. So uh, let's hone in on just maybe one or two. I, I wanted to talk about Duke's new look because there's in issue four, I think it is, there's quite a big reveal to it that uh, on one of the pages, there's a quarter page splash, let's call it, that d- there's a reveal of Duke and he's in a more military suit uh out sorry more military outfit out of his black suit that he'd previously been wearing uh you know the knee pads the helmet uh shoulder pads etc and then you know saying look at it look at you man of action where's the monkey suit and what was interesting about this is that it's i think one of the first pushes from uh devil's due to try and have their characters matching the uh the figures that are coming out so this look was based on a 2002 duke uh, the from the range where they didn't have their o-rings uh or or sort of swivel joints or anything it was is you know it was the era of figures that is probably best forgotten where you've you've got much less articulation but that was the look from 2002 for for that particular duke were those the ones that were packaged uh, where it said G.I. Joe versus Cobra? Yeah, that's right. And it was a, generally a double pack of a Joe yeah. and, a, and, a fo- and a Cobra being packaged together. There's a there's a toy helicopter in uh, issue three or four, right? That's that's also part of the toy line. Yeah, I think they call era? yeah I think they call it the Wildfire in the issue, but it's also known as the Night Attack helicopter. And 
the first time it appears, it looks a little bit weird and insectoid, but um, as it appears subsequently, it looks a little bit more like the, uh, the helicopter. There's a letter in one of these issues where someone says, uh, I don't like the design of that helicopter. It's too rounded, like modern, you know, cars. It needs to be more squarish, like old school mm. GI Joe vehicles. And, and then the person says, I, I guess that's just a design choice. Uh, so my, my comment on fashion will be um, how strange it is to see one of these really weird G.I. Joe vehicles from that middle era of toys that people have mixed feelings about in this comic, in this arc, which isn't trying very hard at all to incorporate G.I. Joe vehicles. You know, there's no like all strikers. The mm -hmm. Joes don't call any out. None of the pilots jump into any signature Joe planes. We see some hiss tanks, but they're sort of afterthoughts. Yeah, interesting observation. Um, anything from, from you, Jay? Yeah, I hadn't noticed that. Well, I mentioned Mainframe in the last episode. We really didn't see too much of him um, other than a couple panels. And these three, we, re we really see where he's got like a full body jumpsuit almost with all kinds of cables and things connected to him. And it's it's weird. I mean, it's it's like right out of the Matrix. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like I said, with, with the last time, I feel like some of the, the redesigns are just kind of bland. Um, a lot of it is is inconsistent. Uh, Major Blood, you look at some of the panels with him, and it's like it's kind of like his older, you know, his original outfit, but there's just, you know, they added too much in it. Yeah, I, I feel like that. I wish that they would have stuck more to the original designs. I realize that we're talking five or, or seven years or whatever it is between then, and of course things are going to change. But there's, you know, many of the characters are either uh, just unexciting in the way they're they're presented, you know, with the, with their outfits, uh, or just the opposite, bland. Uh, there was one thing that I noticed that I thought was really strange. Was I mean, I understand why they did it, but it, story wise, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow, or not Storm Shadow, Snake Eyes and Scarlet, when they're held in um, the castle, you know, they escape, and we talked about this earlier, they've got, I don't know, like white, and Snake Eyes has the bandage on his on his face, and then the next time we see them, they're quarantined in the G.I. Joe base, and they've both got their uniforms on, and I feel like, okay, so somebody brings them in, and they say, you guys need to be quarantined, but here, put your uniforms on while you're in quarantine, <laughs> You know, and it's like you guys talked about when in another episode with the uh, torpedo when they were in Fort Knox and, and he comes in and he's got a full wetsuit on, including the flippers. And you just think, well, that's way out of place, you know, so I can understand why they did it. But if you're trying to read it, I don't know. It's it's one of those things that took me out of it a lot. OK, let's move on to I Spy. Any little nuggets hidden away in the details? I spy, I spy with, with my, my little eye. Tim or Jay, did, was there anything that you wanted to spotlight? This isn't a, a, a G.I. Joe thing. This is a comics thing. There are some sound effects which are drawn into the art, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, kaboom or whump when something explodes or uh, someone gets punched. A lot punched. of times, yeah. And um, at the end of, uh, is it issue three? Uh, there's a lightning strike behind Destro outside. And... It's such a fun, <laughs> great draw. Yeah, at the end of issue three, um, Destro is saying, activate the Gaijin satellite. Oh, so he's on a catwalk and behind him is a window. And then we can see above and out him like purplish dark storm clouds. And there's a lightning strike. And then the word boom is drawn as like electric letters. And this is in the art. This is not, this is not computer lettering. 
and that's really fun. Uh, it doesn't work uh, at the beginning of the issue when we go from Zanya and Zartan shooting some guards from blam, blam, blam to boom for this lightning strike mm. um, where it seems like Blaylock is trying to create um, like a film editing technique where you have one sound become another mm. and you like cut from one shot to another and you can't really replicate that in comics and even though J. Scott Campbell didn't draw the insides of this issue it brings me back to um, his Wild Ciders comic where in the first couple pages uh, he literally draws a panel of a record player and like the sound effect is like a record scratch as if he's alluding to this like popular culture like film trailer technique where like someone says something and then we hear a record scratch and then everyone like stops and it's like funny or embarrassing mm -hmm. and the moment changes and it's like no sound effects can do certain things in comics but we can't hear them uh so i i, I like overall i like the use of sound effects uh in the in the gi joe uh in this arc except for this blam blam boom lightning sort of graphic match cut very good anything from you jay not anything for particular uh for i spy and i'll admit i didn't even notice the boom and the lightning behind destro in that panel yes yeah, good i like it um maybe to their credit i was into the story you know and i was just kind of going along and, and i wanted to see what happened next the one i spotted was using real life politicians so uh, there was a reference i think to donald rumsfeld in uh, issue one and then in issue four we had the Speaker of the United States House of Representative and future convicted felon, Dennis Hastert, who was convicted <laughs> for financial crimes related to paying hush money to cover up repeated incidents of child molestation. He became the highest ranking elected official in the US history to have served a prison sentence. Quote of the week, quote of the week. I did have a favorite line of dialogue. Um, I believe it's in issue four as Cobra delivering supplies to the Midwest. You get a, uh, a caption where Destro is explaining his plan and he says, their fears are quelled when a friendly masked soldier or gruff but kind Dreadnought hands them a gift. I just don't think I've ever heard Dreadnoughts described as gruff but kind. <laughs> I, I think of I think of that line as uh, suggesting more to these scenes where Cobra is like winning the hearts and minds of all these Americans who like don't have power or don't have food, mm -hmm. um, and that's a that's a thing that I that works really well. That that idea works really well in this comic, and I wish they could spend a little more time with it. It's like, no, your 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 society is not functioning. Well, we've got Cobra trucks ready to deliver. You know, there's that yeah. panel of a little girl with a teddy yeah. bear and an, yeah. and an iron grenadier, is it? Is handing her yeah. Uh, yeah. something. Yeah, it was like two pages four. and that was it. It frustrated yeah. me a little bit because they show like one truck, you know, handing out some stuff and, you know, hint at some other things. But it's like, you know, America is a big country. What, you know, the logistics to actually distribute aid to enough of the country that would make a difference in terms of winning hearts and minds um, seems like a big thing to to carry off particularly if you're having to shoot, <laughs> capture and shoot soldiers each time to do it. When you have the shorthand of nanites, uh, I guess you can also have the, sh like, oh, we took over the country in four pages. Well, mm. we can also save the country in two pages. <laughs> Efficient. <laughs> right. 
Okay. Right, let's put ourselves in positions of power as we become the editors. Talking Joe is editing. What changes will we think? Rearrange all sorts of things like covers. The script is in the air. Correcting everywhere, wielding the red pen of change. Devil's due, our moment to comment. Make it right, where we can make the book our way. We're wielding change. We're editing. So let's get this out of the way. Um, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to cover off Tim's point in a more succinct way. Uh, the lettering is terrible <laughs> again, particularly on issue two. There there was that page that uh, Tim was talking about earlier where, where um, Duke is doing a lot of talking and there are just square boxes uh, segueing into round speech bubbles it, and it's just overcrowded and looking horrible and you know so only so much of that can be fixed um, but by editing the the way that the letters look more can be done by um, possibly cutting down the dialogue and trying to keep it to what is actually you know essential to have on the page and what was interesting is that it does seem to improve with issue three and with issue three there is a credited letterer credited as dreamer design so it does seem to approve, and I wonder if that has something to do with it. If you want to put on your graphic designer hat, if you have the issues in front of you, not the collection, open up issue four and count the number of different fonts mm. on the inside front cover, and you will have a suggestion of why lettering and design for this comic got away from the creative team. Mm. If I'm going to put on my editor hat and change one thing, I would run my whole letter in a <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Jay, anything from you? I think for me, it would just be a lot of the pacing. Uh, like, like Tim said earlier, they seem to cram a lot into, you know, into every page. Mm. Um, and then, as I mentioned, when we get to the battle and final, or the, the final battle in, in issue four, everything is, all the panels almost are just, the camera is right up on the characters. And you, you move from, from this character interacting with this character. The scene, we'll call it, cuts to a different couple characters. And again, it's just close up on these characters. There's not a lot of pullback. Let's look at the big picture and see what's going on. And the whole series is kind of like that as a whole. There's just, you know, they, they crammed more in here than I think they needed to. And I think yeah. an editor could have hopefully said, you know, let's take some breathing room every yeah, once yeah. in a while pair, pair back on some of the cd plots and, and yeah focusing on the main stuff yeah big firm agree so we've got to the end of the four issues um let's have a yo joeage out of 10 what would our rating be let's say let jay why don't you go first oh why do i have to be first um <laughs> Well, like I said, I feel like, again, you know, I'm repeating myself. I got to give these guys credit for, for trying it. Larry's huge shoes, not like Destro's. Uh, there's, there's big shoes to fill. It's a property that we all love. And they took it on. 
whatever we might think about their efforts, I, I have to give them credit for that. And I think, you know, and I've also said this, um, I enjoyed it more than I thought that I would. That said, there's a lot of faults. Um, I'm going to kind of go back to what Chief Voice says. Anything above a five means I don't regret reading it. Um, so I'm going to give it a 6.5. Okay, good. I, I agree with most of that. I think there are certainly flaws. I don't know that I particularly in, enjoyed reading some of it when it was just getting you know super dense, but I wholeheartedly respect what they did, and I certainly did enjoy it at the time. I'm going to give it, I think, a 5.5. Just because of the the issues with the the plotting and and some of the particularly the earlier art and the, and the pacing, but the, with an optimism that that things are going to get better. Now Tim's going to come in and drop a three. I'm going to come in and drop a four. <laughs> um, I wasn't too far off. This is this is merely competent, right? This is not incompetent. There are characters. I can follow the story. It gets uh, hard at the end. Too much is going on. Uh, I, I don't think, uh, it, it's too harsh to say these are all amateurs, but I don't think they were quite professional yet uh, across the board. You know, it, this isn't like a self-published creator-owned thing where the stakes are much lower. This is a multi-hundred this multi million dollar brand. Yeah. And uh, I would expect Hasbro to be harder on the people making this and the people making this to be more rigorous with their own abilities. That's a good point. And next time we will read more of uh, the book. We will be reading issue five, and we'll also be discussing the Data Files specials, which were launched as a, uh, a tie into this. And I think there is some adverts for them in the uh, back of the book. Uh, yeah, it's the back yeah. Co- inside back cover of four. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, inside back cover of four, we've got more David Michael Beck uh, art, this time uh, advertising their first spin-off, which was Battle Files. So uh, similar to the order of battle that we had from Marvel back in the day. Um, and so, yeah, we'll be delving into that and discussing some of the art and, and some of the features of that book. And then after that, we will be f- on full pelt as we go through the issues covering an arc at a time so yeah five was a bit of a standalone which is why we're just gonna cover that off in a, on a one uh, one-off episode and uh, otherwise we'll be covering uh, three to four issues at a time and covering an entire arc so looking forward to to that and interestingly enough tim i think you said you dropped off around about issue 10 and i think it was that point was it, it really started picking up so i'm looking forward to getting past uh, that that point and uh, yeah, getting into the meat of some of those more interesting uh, stories once we're past this opener. And let's move on to the next segment, which was is my quiz all about if something was true or false, also known as Devil's True or Devil's Poo. Devil's True, 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 our poo, poo, poo is all I want to know right now. True, 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 or boo, boo, boo. Let's find out the answers right now. So the first one, you might have noticed on the last pages of some of these issues, I think it says to be continued in 60. So first few issues were running bi-monthly. And the reason for that was that Image insisted that the book could only be published bi-monthly. Devil's True or Devil's Poo? Jay? I'm going to say P. 
poo. Mm. And I don't really have anything to back that up other than uh, possibly the fact that these guys are new, it's their first effort, and that they might want to try to take a little more time between issues. Okay, interesting. You are wrong. No, it was true. Oh. And um, so the image insisted that it be bi-monthly initially, and this was possibly because of the image founder's own difficulties in keeping to a reg regular schedule that they thought yeah, that this, you know, these new punks coming on board <laughs> protect them a little bit and... Uh, and you know, try and get them to a bi-monthliness. You know, prove that they've got what it takes to do that first before over-promising and under-delivering. They quickly realised that actually, this was Image's number one selling book, and uh, maybe it would be such a good idea to hold that back. But uh, Blaylock is still upset at all of the revenue that was missed out on because of this rule that uh, Image initially insisted on. Oh, interesting. Tim Seeley was approached for the book, but he said that he wasn't ready yet and recommended that his friend Steve Kurth take on the art duties instead. Tim. Hmm. That sounds plausible. I haven't read this, but I'll say true. It's plausible because it's true. Yep. Tim Seeley did indeed come onto the book at a later stage, but uh, initially said no and pointed to uh, Steve Kurth to take it on instead. The relationship with Hasbro was good and they had some great suggestions that were incorporated into the book. Jay. I'm going to say that's probably true. Uh, like we talked about with getting uh, the Duke in, in there, you know, with the uh, action figure accurate costume and the inclusion of like the wildfire helicopters. It's false, I'm afraid. Oh. Uh, Josh Blaylock describes that working for Hasbro was a nightmare. He said they didn't Oof. know who Snake Eyes was. They couldn't understand that it wasn't for five-year-olds, whereas you know their, their publishing strategy was to aim it as for a more nostalgic audience of the 20s and 30s who had read the book as kids. And they would come up with questions like, why are you including Hell's Angels, a dominatrix, and a pimp in the book? <laughs> Not realising <laughs> the Dreadnoughts, Destro, and Baroness were actually main characters of the franchise. There have been years where Hasbro has been, you know, more on the ball with its own brands. And there have been years where Hasbro was very much into licenses like Star Wars and Indiana Jones and like the Marvel characters. And uh, in those years, the core brands like G.I. Joe and Transformers don't get as much love. Yeah, and I think, unfortunately, yeah, the, the contacts that they were given at particular points uh, for, for the leads in Hasbro simply didn't uh, know the, the brand well enough to, to really add value uh, and understand what it was about. I've heard plenty of stories of, um, especially like at Toy Fair, when Hasbro would bring properties and the people that were there displaying the properties really had no idea what they were talking about. Fans would ask them questions. Are we going to see this figure? Are we going to see this figure? And the people from Hasbro were just clueless. So, yeah, I can believe that. Next one. Marvel had proposed a G.I. Joe X-Men crossover. Tim. Oh, wow. Um, well, there was, a, uh, there was an X-Men Star Trek crossover. There was. Uh, that Mark Silvestri drew, 
So uh, this feels possible, but uh, if I'm assuming that this question is sort of around this time period. I um, think it, I think it would be. In which case I'm going to say not true. So unfortunately for you, it is true. Oh, it was wow. indeed wow. proposed by Marvel. And I think, as you say, it was probably around that same era that the, the Star Trek crossover happened. It was turned down for two reasons. Firstly, that uh, they didn't think that it fit with the G.I. Joe brand. And the second one is that because of this sort of slightly fractious relationship with Hasbro, that Blaylock was somewhat nervous that the crossover would be a big success and it would uh, be used as a somewhat of an anvil to that they could be hit with um, to show look what look what can happen if if you give the license to a you know a bigger more established uh, player like Marvel you know you could have a big uh, success that sells much higher than the the regular book with those punks over at Devil's Due. That's fascinating. There there were plenty of Marvel and Image crossovers in the late nineties and early two thousands and that were not very good, even if it's sort of exciting that someone wanted to do it and that there were exciting writers and artists. And I feel like I have to agree with the logic here that it's it's not a good fit. Like the fan in me wants to see it, but once I start thinking about it, like, no, 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 the X-Men like fly and they shoot mm -hmm. force beams out of their eyes. Like what, what are you going to have a G.I. Joe character do? Yeah, absolutely. So there we go. We'll have more poo or true <laughs> next time. Uh, and now we'll pass the baton over to Jay for some toy talk. Mark talks about toys, ho ho. He talks about G.I. Joe. He talks about all the toys from the comic book and the animated show. Mark talks about toys. Mark talks about toys. All right. Um, the character that I want to talk about, the toy I want to talk about, is uh, Destro, since he did play such a big part in these issues. Um, and I kind of told Tim last night, we were talking about it a little bit, uh, what I'd like to do is is maybe compare the original figure of Destro to the recently released Classified. Now, the mm -hmm. Classified Destro seems to be one of uh, fans' favorite figures from the line so far. And I feel like um, a part of that is because it is so faithful to the original. Uh, the original Destro was almost completely clad in black. He had silver gauntlets, uh, one with three grenades and, and on it and the other with three rockets. Of course, he had the iconic open shirt, the big red disco collar, and the silver mask. Um, and then he's got a red pistol holster on his leg. The classified figure is almost a mirror image of that. There's very few differences. The only difference is his boots are gray. Uh, he's got gray knee pads on. The belt is gray. He still has the red holster on his leg. He still has the gauntlets, although one doesn't have grenades. One still has the rockets. He's still got the disco collar, the open shirt, the gold medallion. Um, he does have a, a few more um, spotlighted parts. He's got some gray pads here and there. But uh, overall, it's very, very similar to the original figure. Um, now, the original figure was a, kind of thick around the waist. And um, I don't know, it, it looks strange. I'm looking at a picture of it right now from Mark Bellamo's book. And, uh, you know, the legs are kind of tapered towards the ankles. I don't know. It's a little bit blocky. But the new figure, the classified, is just a gorgeous figure proportionally um, designed the, the scale of the figure the musculature it's really a great update and it's one that i was very happy to get and i think uh, most people that are buying these would agree and they a lot of people like i said have have said this is their favorite figure from the line you guys have any thoughts yeah wouldn't agree wouldn't disagree with 
any any of that. I think um, it was a great reinterpretation on that classified, keeping all of those distinctive details from uh, from the V1 and, and just sort of enhancing it, really, sort of just yeah. adding to the textures and, and but but you know not to the extent that that it's noodling and and taking taking away from from that you know silhouette color yeah. um, sort of accents that that you know identify what uh, Destro the essence yeah of kind of like we talked about with the the redesign of the characters in the book it's it's still very faithful to the original without going too far away from from the original concept it's updated a little bit um, one nice thing about it the original Destro had a backpack that opened up and his pistol fit really nicely in mm. there um, the original backpack looked like it had uh, like an M16 inside that was broken down the new figure has um, an attache case. You open it up, and there's a laptop with a screen inside. Oddly, it has a Cobra logo on it, and so does the the case itself. And I say that because, as we know, Destro is supposed to be Mars, not necessarily Cobra. Now, the pistol that he comes with doesn't fit in here, and that's kind of disappointing. Now, like a lot of the classified figures, though, he does have, with the red holster on his leg, he comes with a gold pistol that's removable that fits perfectly in that. And I suppose you could put that in the in the backpack, but there's no reason to since it fits on his holster. But the yeah, the black one can fit in his holster as well, and then you can stick the uh, oh, does gold it? One in I the... haven't tried putting it in there. Yeah. One nice thing about the case that that opens up and it looks like one side of it is full of money, which is kind of cool if you think, well, he's a weapon supplier, so. It wouldn't be outside the realm of possibility for him to be walking around with a with an attaché case full of money. Mm. So yeah, like I said, it's a great figure. If you if you're into the the classified lines, it's definitely one that you've got to get. Agreed. And uh, some interesting uh, new Destro figures announced yeah. just this last week. Sort of the using 12 that inch Mezco same, statue, I same think. sort of design. Yeah, yeah, and it's it might be exactly like the classified line. I haven't looked at it real close, but. I've heard some other people talking about it, and they seem to, to, you know, imply that it's it's basically this version and not necessarily the original. Very good. So uh, with toy talk done, we are able to move on to GI Joe merchandise. Merchandise, and Tim is going to unveil another little nugget for us. You know, GI Joe ain't just toys, funny books, and tunes. Those guys will license anything. So funky, so nice, G.I. Joe merchandise. Do you need it? Sure you do. It's G.I. Joe branded, fool. What shall we make? We can't decide. Pick some old crap and put Flint's face on the side. On the side. T-shirts, funkers, sticker shampoo, lunchbox soap, jackets, underoos. Yeah, that's right. I said underoos. Badges, brushes, combs and mugs, telephones, tissues, and probably hugs. Hot damn, G.I. Joe hugs? Radios, candy, tense tattoos, with a G.I. Joe logo they just can't lose. Door knocker, doorbell, even doormat, they're probably brand your dog and your cat. So funky, so nice, it's G.I. Joe merchandise. Do you need it? Sure you do, it's G.I. Joe branded, fool. What shall we make? We can't decide. Pick some old crap and put Flint's face on the side. It's G.I. Joe merchandise. Whoa. <laughs> Crikey. All right, so I am playing the 
1993 uh, G.I. Joe Star Brigade. Oof, let, me, let me turn off the sound. Uh, electronic, uh, the Tiger Electronic Handheld Game. Um, Tiger made a whole bunch of these in the early 90s. Um, they have a very small screen and a relatively large plastic casing around it. So there's like room for marquee art around the screen. It's uh, liquid crystal display, like your old Casio digital watch. Uh, you play as Duke and you only play as Duke. Mm. And the sort of color imprinted image underneath the black character art that lights up uh, is a cratered surface of uh, perhaps a moon um, you can move left and right, uh, you can, and when you move left or right, and then you move left a second time or right a second time, you, you fire from your blaster. There's a, a call button and one of three or four other Joe characters from Star Brigade will show up on the sides and there's a jump character. These games, uh, I was, I, my brother had one or two of the, uh, Tiger games. I think we had the licensed, like, Streets of Rage or Street Fighter. And they just, none of them worked. I mean, technically, physically they work, but sort of as, as entertaining gameplay, they were all way too loud. Uh, it, would, it, would, it would hurt my ears. <laughs> um, and the available sort of space on this uh, like inch and a half by inch and a half screen um, and these, these sort of pre-printed templates where your character can show up, where a blast can show up, where a villain can show up. You know, this isn't like Game Boy where you have all these tiny pixels that construct your image and you can sort of move wherever according to the program. You can only move in certain places here. Uh, so the gameplay in all of the Tiger games, not just the licensed ones, was super limited, not fun. These felt like they <laughs> were aimed at really young kids, like five and six. And I was always surprised when I saw someone older playing with one, including myself. And then after five minutes, I'd think, well, this isn't fun. I'm going to stop playing. But as a piece of G.I. Joe merchandise, as the line, uh, the toy line was winding down and then canceled, this was really novel to me and, and sort of valuable. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just read to you uh, one or two sentences from the instruction manual. The instruction manual is a small white pamphlet and uh, uh, all of the words and images are printed in uh, sort of magenta. Cobra has recognized that to further their goal of conquering the world, they must leave the world as we know it. So under the leadership of evil mastermind Destro, they are building a military base on the moon in order to launch an all-out galactic attack on Earth. Are you ready to join the G.I. Joes? Good. Uh, the objective of the game is for you to control the G.I. Joes and their G.I. Joe armor bots to defeat Cobra and their leader, Destro. Mm. You always play as Duke. You must try to complete your mission of defeating Cobra and their leader, Destro. There is a timer to give you a sense of how much time remains in each stage. This is fun for, you know, two minutes, and then you realize it's sort of hard <laughs> and not fun. It takes two AA batteries, and um, I, owned, I owned two. Uh, one still mint-sealed, and one that I took out of the package at the time i uh, haven't played it since 1993 just for this podcast and i believe i got these at the woolworths at my local suburban shopping mall which did have gi joe figures in in 93 as the line was winding down very good and uh, have you been on ebay to see how much your sealed one is worth 
he can probably get a classified figure for what that's worth. You think? Uh, all right, I'm hopping onto eBay. GI right. <laughs> Joe Star Brigade Tiger Star Brigade. Whoa, uh, there's one for sale, pre-owned for 150. Wow. And none others. I'm I'm guessing this was produced in small quantities, mm-hmm. and that if it didn't sell, these were you know returned or junked or whatever happens to. Uh, to unsold merchandise at a store like Woolworths. Let me try a second search. Shadjo Tiger Electronic. Okay, well, if you sell that, you can get a Cobra Viper from the classified line off eBay. Is that what they're going for? They're really expensive, yeah. Uh, geez, I feel like I feel like I should just post a YouTube video of a playthrough. Like, I should set up my camera, <laughs> and you can see my thumbs hitting these four buttons and... Uh, and watch me play this game for six minutes. Uh, maybe I'll get a bunch of hits if I do that. I'm not going to do this. I'm just thinking it'd be a good idea. Six minutes? You said it. Stop being fun after two. Uh, if I do people were watching, the goal would be to get sort of every little variation of the graphics to there appear. It's like, well, if I go up on the top right and I call, maybe rock and roll shows up. And if I go up on the bottom left and I hit the call button, the armor bot uh, shows up. I... I Huh, 150 bucks, nice. It's interesting to me that they had Destro be the leader of Cobra in that. I wonder why they did that. Uh, I think it's because, correct me if I'm wrong, his Star Brigade figure came out before Cobra Commanders. I think it's just sort of timing, mm-hmm. like what probably, figures were in the line that year. Probably oh, no okay. Cobra Commander, right? But that that art of um, Destro in, in the Star Brigade is is nice, and, and obviously they recycled um, some Michael Golden-esque um, poses for, for Destro in it. It's a, it's a nice image if uh, nothing if nothing else but yeah if that video doesn't exist i think it should and i think you should be uh, the man to, to make it happen tim if if our tens of thousands of new listeners that have come to the podcast since i told facebook and the internet that i have that i've joined talking joe <laughs> if i if there's enough demand i can i can set up a lamp and my camera and i can sit and i can be near some ambient light by a, a window and uh, may, maybe i'll Maybe I'll just take a couple seconds and send it to you, Mark, for you to put into the inevitable YouTube version of this podcast. Uh, so with that done, we can quickly move on to uh, everyone, and particularly Tim's favorite segment. It's Inuendo. Hmm. Attention. At this moment, you are now listening to Talking Inuendo. If you are offended by words like sucking, flesh wound, willy, Pete, balls, crystal balls, hypno shield, whatever, take the tape out now. This is not a pop album. And by the way, suck my grandmother's mother- brick in a Prada handbag. So uh, as a reminder, if you're in the right frame of mind, and specifically my frame of mind, uh, some of the (laughs) G.I. Joe names can sound a little bit dirty. Can I get through a list of 10 rude sounding G.I. Joe names without making my co-hosts titter to give me some validation or guffaw, in which case I will win. Um, So let's go. Double blast. Tim is on mute. This. <laughs> <laughs> I was about sorry. to say, Tim, let's put our game faces on here. Sorry, we sorry. Cannot laugh. 
Okay. Sorry, uh, I I am prepared. I, I I will not. I I don't find Double Blast funny or not funny. It's just a Joe name. Okay. I find it disappointing because it sh- it should be Roadblock. Okay, Double Blast. Headman. Headhunters. Heavy duty. Duty. <laughs> you win. I'm okay. smiling. I'm smiling, but I'm not making. I think. I think you put your thumb on the scale, Mark, with uh, pronouncing that that T like a D. It's <laughs> the way I always pronounce it. It's just the my pronunciation. I snickered at Headman, honestly, but, but I don't think you heard it. <laughs> that okay. that name that name just makes me think of his amazing death scene in the animated series. Headman. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. He ODs on his own drugs. Oh my gosh. His own supply. Wow. Man. Okay, so with heavy duty, let's leave. I said it's just the way I say it. Um, let's leave that there. So next time on Talking Joe, we will be covering issue 178, which is an Arctic special. Woo, they're in the snow and everything. Um, so that will be your homework for next time. And then in a fortnight's time, that's two weeks, uh, you'll be back here for a discussion of issue five and the uh, data files. And that might mean that we can keep this under two hours. Ooh. Um, so uh, and then beyond that, we'll be covering uh, arcs at a time. So if you want to read ahead, that's what we'll be doing. You can find us in all of the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk is the website that has all of those places. The podcast links, the Twitters, the Instagrams, and the YouTubes. And of course, as well, a link to our email. Uh, So remember to like, comment, subscribe, wherever you're listening to this, and let us know what you think. And uh, see you next time. Where can people find you, Tim? Uh, see rare G.I. Joe art and paperwork at a realamericanbook.com. Bingo. And Jay, you've just launched a place where people can find your stuff. Yeah, on Facebook. Actually, it's uh, Break Room Sketches. Uh, and real quick, I explained this on the page. Uh, when I started doing the Break Room Sketches, there were several people that would like them all the time. And as I was starting to do them, I would try to tag those people in, you know, when I would do a sketch. And it just got to be too many people. And, and a lot of times I'm literally drawing right up to the last second. And so the other day I decided, well, I'm going to make a list. And then that way I can just, you know, finish the sketch, click the list. Boom. Everybody that likes them generally is going to get to see it. I didn't necessarily mean to create an entire page out of it, but it worked. And I thought, um, well, you know, if I get 20 people to join, that'll be really cool. And by the time I was done writing my first message, when I closed out of that, I already had 23 people join up. Here I am a day later, and I've got over 100 members. So it's pretty exciting. Very good. So, yeah, you can go see. If you're not yet following that page, you can go over there and see Jay's art. A lot of good stuff happening over there. So when all is said and done, you can catch us down the road. Because we've been talking Joe. And we're all out of Joe's. Laters. Bye.